Lord, we, uh, when we come to you in your word and we read what we see here in Mark 15, it is hard to speak in a place where you are silent. And yet, Jesus, you are absolutely incredible. Lord, thank you. We want to thank you for facing a world in love and overcoming this brutal and painful place with the love that comes from God alone. God, could you help us this morning to both see you, treasure you, to be changed by you? Lord, would you help us? Because we need it. And we do ask it in Jesus' good and strong name. Amen. Amen. So here as we look at um, Jesus' accusers, we see at one level um, accusations are really simple. At another level, they're they're very complex. And you look at Jesus' accusers, and the accusation is simple. You are you the king of the Jews? It comes in the form of a question, but there's a lot of doubt behind it. Here Jesus is, having just already been beaten up, and they're asking him the question, are you, you, who look like this, are you the king of the Jews? Now, accusations, if you've ever, if you've experienced them, accusations are always about identity. They're about who are you? Who are you really? You're this kind of a person, not that kind of a person. You could never be that kind of a person. I might need one of the sound guys to help me out here. My mic just keeps going all over the place, and I'm not that smart of a person when it comes to the mic scenario. So, uh, You see this, this accusation. It's very, very personal. If tomorrow you guys say, Daniel was really bad at putting mics on, that would be absolutely true. You could, you could post that. I'm, and I'll own that, okay? But if you were to say the reason that Daniel is bad at putting mics on is he doesn't care about the word of God, ooh, now you're hurting me. Accusations come in a lot of different forms, and we can suppose, why didn't he take enough time to do that? Dude, I tried for 10 minutes to put this on. I don't know why I can't get it to fit on my face. I got a big, fat head. And that's part of the trial. It's staying on now. I think we're good. Thank you. All right. It's hard to keep preaching. I'm trying to think how I could bring this as an example again. The accusation, I think that's probably good. Thank you. The accusation, are, are you king of the Jews, is really a question of who are you? Who are you really? And one of the things that with, with Jesus' life, he's faced this. I mean, as, when your life is, when you're, when you're about to die, or you think you're about to die, we've had that before, I think, some of us. You have your life flash before your eyes. The good, the bad, the ugly. And it's like you, you have this microcosm moment sometimes. Where if, if you've ever been almost falling off a cliff or something crazy has happened and suddenly you're thinking, is this my life? Are these all the moments? And one of the things, as Jesus is facing these accusations, without question, he's remembering high points and low points. He's remembering low points in the desert when Satan himself accused him and said, if you are, now notice how personal these are. These are about who he is as a person. If you really are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If God really cares for you, if God's really your father, why doesn't he care for you? Why doesn't he give you what he wants? Accusations like, if you really are the son of God, 
Why don't you jump off that temple in front of everybody, impress everybody? God himself said he'd protect you if you're really God's son. Accusations like, if God's going to give you all the kingdoms of the world, why not get them now? Just bow down to me, and I'll give them to you now. All of the temptations and the experiences of Christ's life and the accusations that he faces here are about the personhood of who he is and who he isn't. And you and I, when it comes to accusations, you and I face the same kinds of trials. Questions like, who are you really? I don't know if I want to hold on to that, baby. I don't know if I can do this, guys. All right, we'll try. Are you really king? That's the question. Or aren't you? Remarkable accusation put on the lips of Pilate. Five times in the Gospel of Mark, this phrase, king of the Jews, comes up, and it's all right there in chapter 15. Are you the king of the Jews? We'll just call him king of the Jews. This ironic, sarcastic title to put over his cross. Now, you can notice he calls him the king of the Jews rather than the king of Israel. I think that Pilate was trying to put, kind of jab Jesus and be like, you see this rabble out here? You king of these people? And I really think he was trying to put Jesus in his place and saying, you're not that important of a human being. I am. I can help you if you want. If you've ever, all those accusations are accusations against Jesus' personhood, against who he is. Think about the accusations that you or I face. And many of them are just in our own head. Maybe someone has never spoken this way to you, but you believe it. You're a terrible father. You are a horrible mother. Accusations like your work and what you add to the team at work, not that valuable. If you were gone, no big deal. In fact, if you were gone, your spouse would be happier. Accusations like, whether I'm here or not in this church makes absolutely no difference to the community. So why even go? Why be a part of it? All the accusations of our hearts, of our heads, every single one of them center around our identity. Around who we believe we are and who Satan and lies in this world want to convince us that we're not. And one of the things is we, as we see Jesus here with all these accusations, what he knew is he knew that he was the son of the father. And so he could face all these accusers. Now, that, it's very simple at one level how accusations happen, but you look at the complexity of the situation. The accusers, you've got Jesus' accusers, and they're very complex with how they go about this. You see Pilate. There's layers here. Pilate himself says, are you the king of the Jews? Because they called him king of the Jews. And you kind of ask, because why? Who, where did this begin that Jesus took this title, king of the Jews? Who started this? Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus say, I am the king of the Jews. Now, the truth is, he is. He's the king of the nations. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And yet, nowhere does Jesus willingly, publicly say, okay, I am the king of the Jews. And yet, somehow this story began, and Jesus doesn't fight it. It's interesting, too, with the, the idea of Jews. Jesus himself, the, the word Judah and, and Judas, all these things, they all line up as, as Jesus is walking towards the cross. Here he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah, among his people, the Jews, which are named after Judah, betrayed by Judas. 
And now all the Jews slash Judah wants to kill him. Imagine what that's like for him as he's thinking about his own people, his own tribe, his own group. One time is betrayed in the garden, but now in broad daylight, here he is. And, and Pilate perceives the chief priest's envy. Notice how complex this is. He recognizes they're doing this for a purpose. They're envious of Jesus for a purpose. They, wanna, they want him out of the way. And on the other hand, Pilate also recognizes and understands Jesus' innocence. He, said, he says, when they say they want to be crucified, he says, why? What evil has he done? It's very complex. Why is it that it would lead this way? Now, doubtless, I think that Pilate was, was a well-read man. He's a, he's a leader of the Roman government in the area. And he knew that a couple generations before him, about 100 years before him, a famous Roman senator named, named Cicero wrote some things about how do you judge right cases and wrong cases. And Cicero said this. He said, a fire, when it is thrown into water, is cooled down and put out. So also, a false accusation, when brought against a man of the purest and holiest character, boils over and is at once dissipated and vanishes with all the threats of heaven and sea, himself standing unmoved. Now, Pilate doubtless knew this very popular saying about how to judge if a person was innocent or guilty. And Pilate knew that he was innocent. He knew the threats. He knew the jealousy. And yet, we see in this passage, he wished to satisfy the crowds. It's incredible. This man knows so much, and he's so powerless. Here, the most powerful man, he could, at a drop of a hat, say, Jesus is not going to be crucified. And yet this incredibly powerful leader has absolutely no power because he's a people pleaser. He fears the people. And here the most powerful man present, Jesus Christ, absolutely unafraid, makes absolutely no case for himself. And you, get, you see their angle, the approach that they're taking. They take this shotgun approach in which they say, they says there's many accusations spoken against Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, it gives a number of specific other um, accusations in Luke 23. Things like, he said he'd tear down the temple. He said, don't pay taxes to Caesar. He said, and they're just doing a shotgun approach. We will say anything we can to get this man accused. And the one that sticks is, he said that he was a king. And that one, that buckshot hit Pilate. He said, let's look into that one. Let's confront that one. You see their use of this divided and swaying crowd. They're, they're, they don't know where they're going. One moment, Pilate turns to them with the hope that they'll, they'll say that Jesus can go away innocent and, and free, uncondemned. And then the next moment, they're shouting, crucify him. Crowd very easily manipulated by the voice of a few leaders. And Pilate asks this all-important question. I think when it comes to accusations, we have to ask it. What do you want to do? He asks them, what do you want to do? What, what are you aiming for? When it comes to when we, do, when we speak false accusations or when others speak it against us, we have to ask the question, what are you, what's, what's the goal here? What do you want to do? What do you wish for? What do you want the most? Because, again, Pilate had multiple motives, motives of all different shapes and sizes, and yet something always gets the upper hand in the human heart. And that thing that gets the upper hand dominates everything else. And I, we have to pause and consider, Pilate is a very understandable man, very understandable leader. But what has the upper hand in your heart, in my heart? What has the upper hand? What has the final say? You heard about his innocence. 
You heard about what people, the people's motives for betraying him. And then, oh, wait one second. I want to please the crowd. I'm going to please the crowd. There's always something inside of us that gets the upper hand, and we have to pause before God's word and say, what's my motive? What makes me tick? What has the upper hand in my heart? We have to ask that question. Jesus is incredible. You look at Jesus' response in this passage. We have everything to learn from Jesus. You look at the way Jesus answers and also the way he doesn't answer in this passage. First, look at the way he answers in Mark 15.2. He just says, you say so. You say so. It's literally just two, two words in Greek. And he exposes kind of the echo chamber of his own accusers. He just says, su leges, two words, you say so. In many ways, Jesus is doing this. He's saying, you're asking me all these questions, but let me just, let me give you a little mirror here. All that you're doing is you're looking at yourself in the mirror. All that you're doing with all your accusations against me. Christ, one of the things that Christ was very discerning, he understood the state of people's hearts. And one of the, one of the most interesting things about the life of Christ is he didn't teach everybody alike. He taught people what they needed to hear. The, the only person we, we learn about in the, in, the, in the Gospels and all the accusations, the person he had the longest conversations with was with Pilate. But the whole time he's confronting him with truth, longest accounts, John 18, 19, very beautiful passage. You get a chance to read that. It's worth your attention. But one of the interesting things is that, that Jesus didn't teach everybody everything. Josephus, who, who was alive during the time of Christ, a historian, he wrote about the kinds of people that Jesus taught. And he said this, I'm not going to quote the whole passage, but he says, Now there was about this time a man named Jesus, if it is lawful to call him a man. He did many marvelous works among us. And he was a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. You hear that? This is the observation of a Jewish leader, a Jewish historian about who Christ was. And he says, he was a teacher of such people as received the truth with pleasure. They love the truth. He says those are the kinds of people that Jesus was teaching. And yet here he gives Pilate the opportunity. He says, you say so. Look into your own world. Look at the echo chamber of you, the fact that you're only hearing your own suspicions and you're not willing to really hear me. You're not willing to listen. All the lines of communication were broken at this point. And Jesus stood Totally alone, totally alone, and totally betrayed. And that's how he answers it, two words. But then he also, he answers in a way because he doesn't answer it. What he does with more and more accusations heaping up, Jesus just didn't answer them. He says that there was no further answers that he gave to Pilate, and Pilate was amazed. He was, in, he was in awe of this. Not answering at times when there are false accusations is one of the most amazing moments in a person's life. Realizing there's some fights worth fighting and there's others that aren't. There was amazement. Now, this idea of amazement, it's not just like, whoa, that was interesting. It's the same word that's used throughout the Gospel of Mark when Jesus does a, a miracle. He heals a person, and it says that people were amazed. When he heals a blind man, people were amazed. Again and again, this, it's not just a kind of a, oh, that's, wow, that's cool. What is expected? It's, it's in awe of the kind of human being 
right in front of you. Now, when, when Pilate is amazed, he, he, he doesn't know the scripture. He doesn't, he's not familiar with it, but he's shocked that Christ does not make a case. Pilate thought that, that he, would, he would interact with the legal game, but Christ has a disdain for the legal game he's playing. He refuses to argue a defense. He refuses to come and let Rome fight for him. He refuses all that. And Jesus, right in the face of the threat of capital punishment, with determination, he looks at Pilate and says, well, that's what you say about me. And Pilate doesn't know what to do with this. He's used to people begging for their life. He's used to, to, to people fighting for, their, for justice. And here he is, justice itself in the flesh, quietly being accused. If Pilate knew the scripture, doubtless he would have right then thought of Isaiah 53 and the leaders of the nations amazed at the suffering servant who says that he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. That he would go like a, like a, sheep, like a sheep before the shears, totally quiet, and he wouldn't open up his mouth. Doubtless Pilate would have thought of that, but he was just shocked at the uproar and the teacher who preached so broadly suddenly totally silent. But it was a silence you could listen to. And if there ever was a case in which a case could have been made for a person, it would have been Jesus. You ever, you ever hear the saying, we, we, we say it in our world, the best defense is a, yeah, the best defense is a good offense. Exactly. Pilate here, Pilate here expects Jesus to understand that kind of wisdom. And, and there's this distinction, though, that goes on. There's this distinction that Pilate tries to make a case for Jesus, but Jesus won't have any of that. Why did Christ respond this way? Why, didn't, why don't we respond this way? Why is it so hard for us to be accused and to be quiet? If today your spouse, your friend, a person sitting next to you was to lean over and was to say to you, hey, I heard, uh, I heard so-and-so say that, uh, that you're really struggling um, with your finances and you're gambling a lot. What, what would you say? Supposing that it's not the case. You'd say, what? I'm not, I don't, I, I, I don't gamble. I, I, I'm doing, who, who told you that? You, that's how we respond, right? We, we try to say, wait one second, that's not the truth. We get straight to the point. Why is it that Jesus responds so differently than, than we would in this scenario? Now, I believe that the, the preeminent reason that Jesus responds so differently than anybody else in, in, in this passage is because of prayer. Let, let me show you what I mean. You look at the last chapter, Mark chapter 14. You see two different kinds of people in two different kinds of prayer. You see Jesus' way and Peter's way. Look at Peter's way. Peter, absolutely confident in himself, he says, I'm not going to deny the Christ. I'm going to stick with him till the end. In fact, I'll fight for him to the death. I'm, I'm totally for Jesus. And then as the night of prayer begins, Peter falls asleep. Not once, not twice, three times. And then in the morning, as the morning wears on, Peter gets more and more defensive. He says, I don't know that man. No, I, I don't know idea what you're talking about. And these accusations, you know that man? A true accusation. No, I don't know him. And then finally, last ditch effort, Peter goes and prays. 
he weeps bitterly alone. That's the Peter way of prayer. You have the Jesus way of prayer. Jesus deliberately, consciously grabs hold of his identity as the son of the father. And he trusts him knowing that suffering is involved in what God had called him to do. And so he prayed for hours after hour after hour. The same thing. So his soul was solid. He knew who he was. He knew what he was called to do. And now as he stood before so many people accusing him, he could be absolutely silent and entirely trusting. Why do you come to me only after all other means of counsel have been tried? God would probably ask Peter that. I've tried everything, and now I'm going to try God out. I was describing this reality at our sermon cohort, and, and uh, Pastor Danny pointed out, a, 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 he shared a specific story in his life where he, was, he looked all different ways for counsel and insight and, and encouragement and trying to figure out, what should I do here? And then, and then finally, he cracked open a book. And it was uh, Thomas Akempis, Imitation of Christ. And this is, this is what he read. My son, I am the Lord, your stronghold in the day of tribulation. Come to me. Whenever things do not go well with you, how many, how many feel like that's a part of your biography? Things do not go well with you. We all have that many times in many ways. He goes on. The main obstacle that keeps you from receiving heaven's consolation is the fact that you are too slow in turning to prayer. Before you have decided to come to me, you have already sought consolation and comfort from outside things or outward things. And only after you have learned that creatures are of no help to you, do you finally remember that I am the Lord who delivers you. I am the deliverer of all who hope in me. Apart from me, there is no worthwhile help, no useful counsel, and no lasting remedy. He read that and it struck him how much he had been looking for counsel everywhere else, but hadn't just bowed the knee and said, Oh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth that is in heaven. And then repeated it and went back and said, Lord, I need your kingdom. I need. He hadn't been praying. He'd been asking counsel everywhere. You and I do that so frequently. Peter did it. Jesus did not do that. We have to ask ourselves the question, is God, is God more like a steering wheel in our life or is he more like the spare tire that we depend on when we need to but no other times? Is God the steering wheel of your heart or is he merely a spare tire? Do you and I pray before the trials come and prepare our hearts for them? That's what Jesus did. He knew who he was. And I believe that Jesus Christ wants to make Central Bible a church that prays for big things and expects big things of God and sees God answer. And the question is whether we will, we ourselves will enter into that, whether we'll say, God, I want to, before I see any evidence of exactly what you're calling us to do, I'm going to be a person who prays who seeks first God's kingdom. See, what, what Jesus knows that Pilate doesn't know is this, that Jesus knew that what God knows about me is infinitely more important than what others think about me. That what God knows about me 
is infinitely more important than what everyone else thinks about you. Jesus knew that. That was so deep in his soul. And Pilate was thinking God was one little character. Jesus was another little character. And we have the crowds of people and all of their opinions and all of their thoughts. And here, Jesus Christ doesn't listen to any of them. He listens alone to his Father. We can't ignore, though, that this, this where it all goes. It doesn't end well for Christ, does it? At least in this passage. You see the final verdict. In the final verdict, you see both the failure of the final verdict and also the fruit of the final verdict. The failure is all the injustice. It was shocking for Pilate to see how quickly people called for the crucifixion of this man, accused. It was shocking. And it was a failure of justice. The scene, the Sanhedrin, and, and the Pilate, Sanhedrin last week, Pilate this week, they mirror each other. You see it again and again. You see Jesus questioned. Jesus gives a very silent, brief response. And then Jesus' verdict is given. And then mocked, tortured, taunted. Same scene repeated twice. And here, here is an ancient example of what we see so often. Political pundits kind of keeping their pulse on, on what people are thinking and then using political prisoners for power plays. It goes on all over the place around the world. And here, same thing is going on. But watch what happens. The verdict changes because suddenly there's two people, not just one you could choose between. And it's like, where did this guy just come from? Jesus and Barabbas? It's, it's crazy. What, where did this man just come from? How did he get on the scene? Pilate brings it up thinking this could be a deliverance. And the only place in the Gospel of Mark where terminology about insurrection and, and opposing a, a government that comes in is, is right here in this passage about this man, Barabbas. Seven other places the word is used in, in, in Luke and in Acts, but here it's uniquely only one place. Barabbas is a revolutionary. He was a revolutionary, a political prisoner who was killing for the cause of liberation from Rome. And Mark, Mark uh, just calls it murder, but we learn elsewhere that th he was part of what the people called the dagger men in that day. Literally, they were, these, were, these were secret kind of ninja-like agents who would go and they would literally, deliberately kill and assassinate certain leaders they wanted out of the way. They called them dagger men. And they literally would walk around with big coats and, or with, in their robes, they'd have a knife. And they would get as close as they could to the person they were trying to execute. They'd stab them, multiple people would stab them at once, and then they would run. This is the way, this is going on. You read about this throughout that period of history significantly. And this man, now oftentimes, you've got to pause here. When you, when you get this image of Barabbas, some of us think of this crazy guy who's just a lunatic. I mean, have you, how many of you seen uh, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's uh, rendition of Sufferings of Christ? So in that story... Barabbas is a raving lunatic, right? Right? He just is crazy. The guy looks absolutely insane. But here, in this passage, was actually a political prisoner who was actually had significant sway. He was like a ninja of the first century. And here you have two different kinds of insurrectionists, if you want to call it that way. Two different kinds of revolutionaries. Jesus and Barabbas, each fundamentally different kinds of revolutionary practices, one violent, one nonviolent, both of which face the common fate, prison 
execution. And here you see these revolutionary leaders. And which will they choose? What's the image of the kingdom of God that they long for? And they choose Barabbas. Ironically, Barabbas means, uh, if you look at Aramaic, it means son of father. Son of the father. Barabbas. And you have this other man, Jesus, who is also known as the son of the father. And they had to choose which son of the father do I really want? Who am I going to trust to bring God's kingdom? And every major force at this point in history and Palestinian politics in that day are present. All the, the Gentile leaders, all the Jewish leaders, the rebel leaders, the crowds, and Jesus stands alone, abandoned by his community, abandoned by his closest friends, his nearest disciples, and, and Jesus was alone. And it's almost like it goes from a theater of justice to a, a theater of the games, the gladiatorial games. And, and Pilate asks the question, do you want him dead or alive? What should I do with him? And they choose death. And they yell out, crucify him. Crucify him. It's so in, unjust we want to, if, if you've, never read the story, there's a knee jerk. We just say, what? This is wrong. This shouldn't happen. And yet there is fruit from this little scene in the gospel of this final verdict. There's fruit that can be recognized and honored. One guilty man goes free and one innocent man is murdered. In many ways, it's a microcosm, a little picture of the seed of the gospel, of what the gospel looks like. Barabbas, again, a wicked man, he's, he's free. And here Jesus is the real son of the father suffering and, and being crucified. And, and we, when we hear that kind of thing, we're just saying, is, it, is this good or is this bad? Which is this? And we have to say it's both good and it's bad that this happened. It is both good and bad. Jesus, imagine him sitting there saying, I am willing to take something bad for your good. That's, what Je that's how Jesus lived his whole life. I'm willing to take something bad for your good. Jesus elsewhere in the Gospel of John describes how he would pursue the cross in, in John 10, 18. He says that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was totally willing for this to happen. And yet we say, how is this justice? What can we do here? What can we do? How can we respond to this kind of reality? I'd like to suggest to you three ways that you and I are responsible to respond if we really believe this happened to our Savior, Jesus Christ. One, one thing that we need to do is we need to beware of our own echo, echo chambers. Every one of us have echo chambers in our life. We need to recognize how easily swayed we are by other people. And other people who actually may be deceiving us and may have motives for tricking us and using us. We have to be aware of, of the human culture that we live in that creates miniature echo chambers where we only hear one story. And it rarely is the story of Jesus Christ. Now, some of the echo chambers I'm going to mention by name, okay? CNN, Fox News, BBC. Almost any news station is going to tell you a story of what needs to happen and what needs to come, and how things will be dealt with. And there's a way where you enter that echo chamber, 
and you listen to the story told, and you think, if this just happened, then everything would be good again. And the truth is, we've missed something pretty significant, my friends. We've missed Jesus. No one, very few people, I should say, is saying we need Jesus Christ and his kingdom to come. Let us pray and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Beware, my friends, of the echo chambers in that setting. Beware of the echo chambers in your own, in your own communities. That you might have a two, two friends that you regularly interact with and you agree on almost everything with. And you just, like, you have this way of relating with everything. You, maybe there's certain branches of the Christian tradition that you so identify with and you so appreciate that you say, I would never read another Christian who wrote something different than what I currently believe. Now, if that was the case, you and I would have very few, little opportunity to mature. How many of us have ever, I mean, any book you've ever read has had an impact on your thinking. But we have to beware of entering into our own echo chambers and not getting out of them. Now, I am not saying that you and I should be totally open-minded and say, well, whatever, whatever people think, that's totally great. That's not what I'm saying. I, I, I love to say this. When people say, you know, you should be really open-minded, I like to say I love being open-minded as long as my brains don't fall out. I love being open-minded, but I don't want my brains to fall out. I want to actually still be thinking about stuff. Every thought that comes to your head is not God's voice. Every thought that comes to your heart is not the voice of the Almighty. So we have to recognize, I've got to discern through what's going on in my heart, in my head. Paul himself, when he talked about the battle for our heads, he said in, in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 5, he says that the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God. They're not of the flesh. And he says those weapons are used to tear down strongholds. And he says the stronghold that we need to be to tear down our false arguments about who God is and the reality of who God is, we actually have to destroy every argument that raises itself against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought in obedience to Christ. That's a hard fight. He says every one of our thoughts have to learn how to obey Jesus Christ. And he says that's where the battle is. And so my friends, some of us right here this morning, this is the epicenter of our battle this week. Some of us this morning have an echo chamber of accusations about God and about ourselves. And it just goes on again and again. In fact, some of us this morning are wondering, does God even have a purpose and a plan for my life? I just feel confused. I don't even know why I'm here. And we look in the mirror. Maybe, maybe you experience this. You look in the mirror, and all we hear are words that roll off our tongue. Failure. You're a flipping failure. And we don't hear the voice and the word of what the Father would speak at that moment. We think mainly of, of, of what we think about ourselves and the lies that we've embraced, but we don't think, what does the Father speak to me? My friends, we need to beware of the echo chamber of accusations in our own hearts, in our own minds. And we need to recognize, I need, I need to learn to think the way that Jesus Christ thinks about me. And he says, you are my beloved. He says, you are called and chosen. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. I have overcome the world, and I will overcome it again through you. Do not be afraid. Trust in me. Look to me. I'm your father. It is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If we, if we have to watch what's going on, what's bouncing around my head, we have to learn to beware of entering that without the word of God equipping us.
Another thing we need to do is we need to believe this great exchange that we see here in this passage. Again, you see this great exchange with Barabbas. If Jesus was willing to allow Barabbas to go free and not make a case for himself, how much more will he be willing to argue for you before the throne of God? Some of us this morning have terrible accusations against God, against Jesus Christ, and yet Jesus Christ still would say to you this morning, please, I'm going to teach you to trust me. Don't believe those lies. Trust me. I would do the same thing for you that I did for Barabbas. Some of us have terrible sins that we don't know if we could even trust God with. We're not, we're not certain if we can forsake them. They feel overwhelming to us. And yet, that's why he was crucified. We've got to believe this great exchange. It's not just for this person in the distant past, but it was for you and I. He was crucified for us. And the third thing, and this is where I'd like to land, is that we have to be willing to face false accusations without defending ourselves. This is where it gets hard. This is where it gets very hard. And, and, and I, I know there may be an, an initial knee-jerk inside your heart where you say, I don't know if I could do that. But we cannot miss, as Christians who want to learn to follow Jesus, we cannot miss the real power of this passage. Because it's not just that Jesus would do this for us, but that he would actually strengthen us to know how to face accusers. To know how to answer when people say, you're, you're just a messed up person. Christians are stupid. How do you answer that? Here you are, a bunch of people who, whose God caused the crusades and how many wars. How do you answer that? But friends, there's, there's, there's insights in God's word that we need to grab hold of. In Proverbs 26, there's this, there's, there's this interesting passage where you get these two Proverbs that balance one another. And we so need God's wisdom to know how to do this. In Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And he says, answer a fool according to his folly. Excuse me, I just messed it up. <laughs> See, that's why you got to read the Bible. Because we mess it up sometimes. He says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest, he be, lest you be like, like him yourself. And he says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes, how do we answer? Should I say anything? Should I not say anything? My friends, that's why you and I need to be a people of prayer. We need people totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. We have to learn to pray like Jesus, our king, prayed so we can learn to walk like Jesus walked. So I would like you just to think on this as we end. Do we need to trust Jesus to clear our name? In fact, Jesus alone can truly clear your name. He alone can really make you a son of the Father. He alone can make you a child of God. And he is even willing to take up to allow you to take up his own identity and to take up his own name. That's what he wants to do in your life, in your thoughts. That's what he wants to do this morning. Father, would you help us to be a people who are strengthened and supported by Jesus Christ and that we would be aware of entering into trusted echo chambers where we only hear things that we agree with. Oh, Lord, allow your word to tear down strongholds and ways of thinking that do not honor you. And Lord, would you give us grace to believe this great exchange? Lord, would you comfort everyone who's present here with us this morning, who, who knows uh, the whole truth, and, and, and you're starting to show some things to them, and they're saying, I need to change some things. 
and, and, and they've been accusations, and they say, this is not what happened, but this is what that person said. Lord, would you give us grace to both endure and wisely engage wrongdoings, to both hear your voice and be a blessing in this world. Lord, we praise you for your grace. I thank you for these saints here. Allow us, O oh Lord, to follow after you in Jesus' name. Amen.